Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, July 11th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a special diabetes program could expire in September. Mississippi advocates are asking lawmakers in Washington for an extension. Then in the Delta, the Baby University seeks to support young parents and their babies. Plus, we look at some of the state's new laws that went into effect the first of the month. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The clock is ticking for federal lawmakers to pass a law extending the special diabetes program. It helps fund research for type 1. Unless Congress takes action, it will expire in September. Our Lacey Alexander speaks with Aaron Turner Pfeiffer, a policy expert at the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation of Mississippi, about the need for funding. He says the state has one of the highest rates of pediatric diabetes in the nation. They're hoping to connect some of those children with lawmakers in Washington to push the vote forward. Special diabetes program, since its inception, the better part of two decades ago, has really energized research in the type 1 diabetes space, focused on you know, improvements, some amazing technology um, has come available for people with type 1 that helps them better manage uh, their type 1 diabetes. And a lot of that was directly funded or uh, some of the initial groundbreaking research was funded by the Special Diabetes Program. It's also got us to a point where we are closer than we've ever been to a cure for type 1 diabetes, in large part because of that two decades of dedicated funding from the Special Diabetes Program. Uh, The first ever disease-modifying therapy for type 1 diabetes was just approved by the FDA. It delays the onset of type 1 for up to two years. It's really been amazing the impact this dedicated funding has had in really energizing um, both public and private sector investment in type 1 diabetes cures. And Aaron, I understand that your program, the advocacy, your position is with advocacy at the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. Uh, How does this, um, how does the SDP help with juvenile diabetes? What kind of funding, what kind of research have they gone into that part of the illness specifically? One of the interesting things about type 1 diabetes is for a long time we thought it was just in kids. What we found is that uh, about 50% of everyone diagnosed with type 1 diabetes are actually adults. And so the special diabetes program has directly impacted the lives of everyone 
who has type 1 diabetes. Not just those who are diagnosed at a young age, but those who uh, are diagnosed late into their adult life. Sometimes parents are diagnosed after their kids are diagnosed, and the special diabetes program has not only improved the lives of folks who are living with type 1 today, but has improved the lives of those who are at risk of developing type 1 in the future. Juvenile diabetes is a problem in Mississippi right now. Talk to me about what this organization does, how they work with children, and educate us a little bit about the 2023 Children's Congress coming up. Uh, JDRF was founded by parents who had kids who had type 1, and their vision and our mission still today is to find a cure for type 1, not just with kids living with type 1, but uh, kids and adults, everyone who is currently diagnosed and those who are at risk of being diagnosed in the future. Um, The Children's Congress is a very special event that has existed since 1999, and the goal is really to bring to light what life is like living with type 1. And to do that, this year we have 160 kids and their families here in Washington, D.C. They'll be meeting with their elected officials to advocate for policies to improve their lives, but at the root of it, really to share what it's like living with type 1 diabetes every single day. It is constant and can be at times feel like insurmountable, um, but with the right amount of support, these kids are doing amazing things. And it's important that elected officials see that, recognize that, and we can also point to uh, direct action that they can take to improve the lives of, of uh, kids living with type 1 today. I should say um, we've enjoyed broad bipartisan support over the years for the special diabetes program. There's a bipartisan Senate Appropriations Committee tomorrow that members of JDRF uh, Children's Congress will be attending and speaking at. And so we're really looking forward to continued bipartisan support on the Hill. Give us some examples of what that legislation and what those policies could be that would help manage this illness. Directly, we're looking for an extension of the special diabetes program. Uh, It's set to expire in September, as you mentioned. And we're looking for uh, full continued funding um, for the special diabetes program. We are confident that we'll continue to enjoy bipartisan support. We're also advocating for a fix to the broken insulin market. We know folks both with type 1 but also type 2 diabetes as well who can't afford their life-sustaining insulin right now. And so we're advocating for passage of the Insulin Act uh, introduced by Senators Collins and Shaheen. We feel good that there's bipartisan support on the fact that insulin affordability needs to be solved, and we're looking forward to continued bipartisan support to find a solution. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, about 330,000 children in Mississippi have type 1 or type 2 diabetes. Between the years 2020 and 2021, diagnoses of juvenile diabetes in the state jumped 50 percent, according to the Diabetes Foundation of Mississippi. Associate Director Irina McLean says extending the research program could help people of all ages with the disease. We estimate that we have about 373,000 Mississippians with diabetes, and of that, 5% of that number would have type 1 diabetes, the autoimmune form of diabetes, 
And according to statistics from one of the national groups, the uh, majority of people with what used to be called juvenile diabetes are actually adults. I think it was something like 75 to 85% of people with type 1 diabetes are actually adults, which is another reason why we've gotten away from using the juvenile diabetes name for it. So, um, you know, it's they're both very prevalent um, in the in the state. I mean, we see we've seen since COVID a lot of children diagnosed with type one diabetes as well as type two diabetes. This may be more of a layered, complicated question, but you, can you kind of educate us on what factors or what reasons we may have seen those increase in diagnoses since COVID? The incredible inflammation that you get from the coronavirus, uh, you know, apparently is the reason uh, why people develop type 1 or type 2 diabetes from COVID. You know, it it seems to attack uh, in the pancreas. Uh, I, I can't exactly speak to, you know, the pathophysiology of it, but we do know that type 1 diabetes can be triggered by viruses, and a lot of it, you know, can be the immune system attacking the virus, but it also notices, say, a sequence of um, amino acids, I guess, on the on insulin that match what the virus might have, so it's making a mistaken attack. And the, I guess from all the things that I've read in the medical literature, it's the inflammation that can trigger diabetes from covid Arena, thank you. You've given us so much wonderful information. Is is there anything else you'd like to speak on? We really are behind the reauthorization of the special diabetes program. You look at all the the discoveries that have been made since the program started in the past 25 years. I mean, look at the smart insulin pumps, the continuous glucose monitors, all the different types of insulin we have, and the research that has given us a better idea of what is going on in the disease process with type 1. Um, It appears to come on rapidly, but in reality, through research, we now know that the um, attack on the beta cells can be going on for weeks, months, even years before that um, young person's diagnosed with type 1 diabetes or older person's diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So it's it's important to have this, and it does provide hope for so many people. Irina McLean is Associate Director of the Diabetes Foundation of Mississippi. Ahead, hear how Baby University is helping provide parenting skills to folks in the Delta. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. What are the cool kids wearing nowadays? A bucket hat and fanny pack. I meant to say a belt bag. That's the 21st century name for it. You can get this MPB branded swag package by making a one-time $60 contribution. You'll also receive a year of PBS Passport to stream new and classic shows. A mix of current and classic. That's Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Make a contribution today at mpbonline.org. Fix It 101 is a fun podcast with lots of home improvement information. Even if that's not your bag, all of the episodes are archived online. So if the mood strikes you or if the need motivates you, you can search your project. And yes, there is a Fix It 101 podcast for that.
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A program in Clarksdale teaches moms to care for their babies from birth until age three. Over the past decade, it has given more than 400 parents a safe space to ask questions about everything from birth control to mental health. Maya Miller, the Gulf States Newsroom, takes us inside a classroom at Baby University. It's the day before graduation, and the classroom is packed. Pregnant women and young moms and their children gather at folding tables for a family-style dinner. At the front of the room, Shalisa Presley is holding up a small white board, drawing a diagram of a uterus. No person should know your body better than you. This is the final class at Clarksdale Baby University, an eight-week course that teaches pregnant and new mothers how to care for their babies. Each Monday night is a different lesson, from labor to breastfeeding and postpartum depression. This week, self-care. That includes mental wellness and birth control. Presley is all smiles as she asks the soon-to-be moms what they know about Nuva rings and IUDs while a toddler plays with a toy car at her feet. She says the impact of having a safe place for parents to ask questions has had lasting effects. I have parents who are participants in this class, and they will come back and tell you it was life-altering, but it took a while. It might have been child number two. It might have been child number three. It might have been child number four before, like, oh, my goodness, ding, ding, ding. Presley, a lactation specialist and doula, co-founded Baby University in 2014. Since then, more than 400 parents have graduated from the program. She says her goal is to reach parents in the Delta who are raising families without many resources. What we do is just a band-aid on a larger issue of racism, classism, poverty, and all the whole gamut. We became a respite area where families came and exhaled. Clarksdale is in the poorest area of the state. Mississippi has the second highest rate of teen pregnancy in the country, and in Cahoma County, where Baby University is, about half of the children live in poverty. There is a hospital that provides maternal care in Clarksdale, but space is limited and it's expensive. Baby U is free, and it's filling the gaps. It offers depression screenings for mothers and newborn wellness checks. The organization helps with material needs, diapers, formula, and clothing through the Diaper Bank of the Delta, which Presley also founded. Ultimately, she's trying to give new parents the tools to better care for their children, which Takiria Holmes says made a difference for her emotionally. Self-control, being able to control like um, my anger, um, being more patient, um, mental health, big on mental health. Holmes has two young children and is expecting her third soon. She says having baby you and Presley has changed how she approached this pregnancy. Most of the stuff that she taught in the class, I didn't know before my two. Like being induced, I was induced my son and I didn't know that we could have waited. You know, those things like asking questions, that's very important. Bianca Zaharescu is the CEO of Spring Initiative, an organization that supports baby you. But she's also a first-time mom, and she says she's in this class to get her up to speed on what having a baby is really like. It's been so um, just, like, meaningful and concretely helpful to really be thinking, like, okay, I can do this. And it's not going to be perfect, but, like, all like all mothers are going through the same thing, right? Like, it's okay <laughs> to be, like, still figuring it all out. 
She points to the circumstances that mothers in rural communities like Clarksdale face that can be difficult to navigate all at once. I think there's there's so many things that are so hard anyway about becoming a parent or being a parent. And I think so important for people to have a way to plug in and get concrete support. That support for parents is still there, even after graduation. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Maya Miller. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public radio stations in Alabama and Louisiana. Coming up, what new state laws go into effect this month? This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, relatively speaking. Southern Remedy. Kids and teens. This is Southern Remedy Women's Health. Southern Remedy is Mississippi Public Broadcasting's premier show about you and your health, featuring doctors and nurses from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Each weekday at 11, we discuss different health care topics right here on MPB Think Radio. It's a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. MPB Think Radio. Mississippi Public Broadcasting and Think Radio. Tune in every weekday at 11 for the full every Southern Remedy Every weekday morning lineup. at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. Whether you love MPB or really love MPB, there's no doubt that right now you're listening to us, but only for right now. For those who only listen to us on the radio, why stop the fun there? With the MPB Public Media app, you can catch us anytime. All your favorite radio and television shows, all in the same convenient place. Now all you got to do is download the app from your smartphone and then, well, enjoy. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Most of the laws passed during this year's legislative session took effect July 1st. In the first of a two-part series, our Kobe Vance shares what some of these laws are and how they can affect Mississippians. So let's talk about some of the key laws. Now, one of the big ones that was controversial but was also uh supported across the aisle was expanding postpartum Medicaid to 12 months. Yes. The state legislature has been looking to do this for several years now. And Democrats supported it. In fact, Democrats support a full expansion of Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. And they say that this would help hospitals that are struggling right now. And that was a big theme this year is talking about the hospitals that are in rural areas and are facing tough financial strains. And this was thought of as a way to, you know, partially meet there, but also conservatives this year latched on this idea because they feel that now that Mississippi has been able to overturn Roe v. Wade with the Dobbs decision at the Supreme Court, that they need to support families a bit more. And that includes postpartum Medicaid benefits. And the general idea behind postpartum is that If you are able to have a full year of coverage after you have a child, then it increases the mother and the child's well-being or it gives them better outcomes because they can go to the doctor. They can get a checkup. They can make sure that they're healthy instead of having to wait until the last minute whenever they are sick. You mentioned rural hospitals, and one of the complaints was nothing was really done for rural hospitals. There was hospital with their better with their bottom line. There was one stopgap measure that the legislature passed this year that 
the way it works is just one-time funding. They sent it out. This is less than a few million dollars in total to all the hospitals they sent this money out to. So while there was some short-term relief for these hospitals, for many of them, it's really not enough. Do you anticipate more closing? Have you been able to get a feel for that? It really does seem like some closures are still coming. Uh, Now, outright closures, that's going to be the most extreme outcome for most of these hospitals. A lot of them are just downscaling. We've seen that especially in the Delta, particularly when it comes to birthing places. So labor and delivery at at Greenwood LaFleur Hospital has been eliminated, and the uh, neonatal intensive care unit at uh, Delta Regional has been ended. And those are major hits to the Delta in terms of if you're pregnant and you have to have a child, where are you going to go? Let's talk about elections. There is a concern that there is fraud in elections, even though there have been no cases that have really been proven. There is this undercurrent uh, kind of attitude that potentially people will cheat. Yeah. What have they done in terms of election fraud? Well, Senate Bill 2358 is a law that will ban ballot harvesting. Now, the general idea behind this is that conservatives don't want people going around collecting ballots from people and potentially changing their votes, having some kind of malicious intent when collecting these ballots and turning them all in at one point. The way this has been used in the past is, for instance, let's say you're in a retirement home. You need to designate somebody at your retirement home as the person who can help pick up your ballot and deliver it. Now this will make that a lot more tricky of a process because you can only designate one person as your caretaker or guardian. Um, You could get a family member to do this, but again, it would have to be that one specific family member. Uh, You couldn't have them handed over to another family member who can deliver it. Uh, It has to stay in their hands. Uh, Another example, let's say you're a church and you have people in your congregation that are homebound. If previously you could go out and help, you know, hey, I heard that you're unable to get out and vote in the election. Let me come over to your house and pick up your ballot and I can get it there for you. Now you can't do that. Uh, Again, this comes back to concerns about election security, especially following the 2020 presidential election. But uh, there was really no concrete examples that lawmakers were able to give in the actual chamber. Also, regarding elections, we saw House Bill 1310, and that one is a bill that has been quite confusing, actually. What it does is it's going to allow the state to purge voter rolls, but it does so in a way that is vague in language. So the primary interpretation of this bill basically reads as if you vote at least once within four years in a primary election then or any election, then you are fine. But if you don't vote for four years, they send you a letter, and you have to reply to that letter to be able to verify that you're still in your address, that you're still a registered voter, and you're, that you want to stay registered. If you, so is this an every four-year deal? Well, every four years? Okay, I don't vote, but I yeah, if fill go- out the card. Then another four years, I don't vote. I fill out the card. Is that- Actually, so if you fill out the card uh, every four years and you just don't vote at all, 
um, you're fine because you filled out the card and mailed it back in and they'll keep you on their records. Then you have you have four years to reply to that letter. So in total, and, and you can still vote at any point during this time, in total, you're looking at about eight years. And if you don't vote at all and you don't reply to the letter when they send you four years in, after eight years, you'll be removed from voter rolls. Now, there's also another interpretation of the law that some lawmakers that I spoke to did agree with. And it's just the way that they read the law because it's worded very vaguely. If you miss any single election, you'll have to be sent this uh, letter and you have four years from that point. Uh, there have been a lot of uh, questions about what this law really is, and I think they'll have to address in the future. But for now, it's the prevailing theory is that the issue, the issue I laid out earlier is the one that's in law. And this other one is just what the language could be confused as. What department or who will be responsible for keeping track of this? It ultimately is underneath the Secretary of State's supervision, but it filters down into the local areas. They're the ones who are actually going to be mailing these things out. They're the ones who have to check to make sure that people are voting on time uh, or, or voting at all. And so it's it's going to put a lot more work on their part in the so local level. about the circuit clerk. Yes, exactly. Tomorrow, in part two, we'll discuss more laws that took effect July 1st. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.